Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the VSoup podcast. Some people get retrospective when they hit 40. Here at VSoup, it's an excuse to put on our party clothes and go strong at the bar till our cash cards get denied. Continuing with the theme from the last show, we've got no guests tonight, just the ghosts of Christmas hangovers past. So, Ed's pink elephants aside, it's on with the show. So, guys, you have a, a good, uh, good Christmas and uh, New Year celebration? Yeah, good for me. Feeling kind of uh, not sure if I'm ready to go back to work after such a long free time here, but we'll see tomorrow. Yeah, you, you went for the the long the long break because uh, I saw someone had said I think the first sort of uh, message I saw on Twitter was someone saying, "Yeah, I've put my out of office on no more work for the year." It was like halfway through December. Um, <laughs> we uh, technically here in Switzerland we get off the 21st of December. And we have to go back the 6th of January, which is also pretty cool. But I almost can't be in country without not working so long. I have to do something. So I go back and I, I leave on the 23rd and I go back on the 3rd. So. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, it's probably quite a good time to get stuff done, isn't it? You know, yeah. If there are, from an operations point of view, if there is maintenance stuff, and it must be easier for a maintenance window. Yeah, sure. Although, that said, I've also seen places that implement change freeze at the end of the year, so they won't touch a thing. Yeah, like our data um, center for providers. For the first of December outwards. Like our data center providers actually change freeze until halfway through January. Yeah. And it's pretty crazy. Well, I guess it's because they realize they might be operating with reduced staff, and the last thing they want is a, an outage that's caused by a change rather than just your regular common or garden act of God type outage. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be the case. I, the pro- project I'm involved in at the moment is also uh, had a change freeze since mid-December, I think, and I, nothing happens there until the 13th of January. So it's kind of a stale uh, period here anyway. So it's been been, been a good week. Um week and a half off with uh, with the family and doing family Christmassy stuff uh, which is which is nice I guess it, it's, it haven't been too much doing anything actually it's uh, the weather here has been poor as hell so it's been raining twice as much as usual for Bergen in December and twice oh, as so, much as so usual no, no white Christmas either uh, no nothing uh, just moisture everywhere <laughs> A moist Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> it just—it just doesn't sound as fun. No, it sounds <laughs> terrible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been meaning to try and do sort of a little bit of home lab and sort of nerdy stuff over over the break, but I just moved house and uh, this there's bits and pieces that I'd like to do to set up more of a lab, but then there's like, oh, it requires doing some cabling and get running some cables through the house and. Well, you don't need a lab anymore, do, do you? You're in management now. Well, yeah, I suppose there is that. Um, there's you may or may not have seen a few uh, connected to me on LinkedIn that I've recently had a, a change in job title uh, in that I am sort of a team lead or uh, pre-sales manager for the, the SE team for uh, Veeam in the UK, uh, which it came about the, the role kind of was a bit of a surprise. Our incumbent uh, pre-sales manager left to work at uh, uh, Pernix Data, and there was a, an opening, and apparently a number of people suggested that I would be good for the role, and I got asked and told that it would be a really good idea. Um, and, you know, in the light of what we were talking about with, with uh, you know, Chad's concept of uh, self-disruption, um, that actually it would be a really good thing. Uh, I'd kind of hit the height of where I could go in the current track, um, which kind of leaves me with three options. You've got to go sort of up, you've got to go sideways, or you've got to go out. Um, so I'm going up a bit, and I'm going sideways a bit. Um, but you know, I'm still hoping to try and be technical um, a bit. But yeah, you know, I've got a, a, a band of band of merry men who will be hopefully doing my, my every bidding, uh, particularly if they're listening to this. Um, but no, it, it, it should be quite fun. Um, and it is going to be a challenge. I, I am feeling slightly out of my comfort zone at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of sort of new and different things. I'm having to, to cope with managing 
exciting stuff like leave schedules and things like that. Uh, but I'm hoping I'll still get a chance to get get down and dirty with some, some customers' designs and all that good stuff. Yeah, that, does that mean you're not going to run around doing booth uh, duty anymore? I suspect I'll be doing a fair bit of booth by duty as well. Um, not necessarily uh, in the, the far reaches of Northern Europe as I was previously. Mm. Um, so, you know, my focus will just be, be on the UK, which apparently my wife is happy about. Uh, she said something about seeing me more often was great and then sort of made this funny kind of smile, but I don't think she meant it. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be nice to be spending a little bit less time at airport lounges. Um, they are not the most fun places, uh, you know, as I've, I've frequently say, and at some point someone might believe me that travel for business is, is not always fun. It has a few fun moments. But and especially think, at the beginning, uh, when you first start doing it, it's really fun. Yeah. Then when yeah, it's just... Well, the first few months, it's great, and then it kind of starts to... When it's repetitive, um, then you start to need to take a break. I'm fortunate enough that I can take up to two to three month breaks before next trip, so then I'm into doing it again. I, yeah, so it's almost sort of fresh each time. Yeah, um, which uh, I think is a definitely a good thing. And also, you know, with a bit less travel, I have got time to sort of, I don't know, not sort of devote to other projects, but, you know, there's a few technical things that I haven't had a chance to do because I've been out and about so much. Um, as I said, you know, trying to rebuild a, a lab and uh, maybe, maybe catch up on a few certifications if I've got the time for it, but certainly getting around to, to building a new lab. Now I've got space, I've got uh, my own sort of proper office in the new house, so... It's all uh, all fun and games, really. Yeah, sounds good. It's uh, it's all changes usually good. Uh, we d discussed this the last time, anyway. So, uh, but moving uh, moving positions like that, and moving roles, and doing something you're out of your comfort zone is is usually a good thing. Uh, it's that kind of stuff you grow on. Um, if you're stuck in doing the same thing over and over again, you don't. At some point, you you can't really do it do it anymore, or or you just continue doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, no, it seems a uh, seems a, a fair enough thing, and it doesn't really matter what sort of what the industry is. I think the same, you know, the potential for stagnation and stagnation is obviously pretty unhealthy. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, a whole new set of skills to learn, um, and it's those soft skills which I'm I'm looking forward to picking up. Uh, thankfully, we're picking up an environment where the actual technical side of it, I'm very comfortable with and very happy with, so I can focus more on those those soft skills, uh, which I, I guess is a nice way to do it. I don't know how other people have made a, a jump into, you know, at what point do you stop think do you stop wanting to be a techie? Well, you know, that's that's probably the wrong thing. I suppose the time you stop wanting to be a techie is when you're no longer interested in technology. And I, that's definitely not the case. But at some point, you've got to work out, well, have I hit the pinnacle of where I can get to technically? And if so, what do I do next? You know, do you go, you know, a lot of people seem to be going down the, sort of the marketing and the R&D side of things. Um, but then you lose the ability to talk to customers. Particularly if you do sort of the, the R&D stuff, it's, you tend to, you know, a lot more stuff it, you can't talk to people about as much. Um, and part of the fun thing I, in my, my job is I like talking to people. Um, so how do you get to talk to people and still be technical? It's a, it's a bit of a balancing thing. Well, yeah, the thing is, is just keep, um, just try to keep yourself up to date as much as you can so that, I mean, you could be almost, you can almost look at it like as a manager that you are, you're almost like a subject matter expert for the people underneath you as well. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah, I think concept of a player manager as it were yeah um is uh hopefully one that's possible whether it's trying to do too many things at once i guess we'll find out mm -hmm. <laughs> it's 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 an interesting uh transition to do anyway i i i guess i i don't know this for a fact but i i have this theory that as you get older, and we were talking about turning 40, uh, which uh, none of us are yet, but but the thing is, I think that as, as you get older, you will probably have more problems 
with keeping up with the pace of everything. I believe as you get older, you generally have problems keeping up. Yeah, and you just give up on life. <laughs> but there's yeah. operations and shit. For that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so who's going to be the chair of vir- chair of virtualization? Hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I think that that kind of means that you have to you know, share a bit like Madonna, you know, reinvents yeah. herself every few years. Um, and that, so, that, yeah, that's the easy of, part. You can just software define it, and you're fine. <laughs> software define pop stars. Yeah, whatever. That's, that's basically just auto tune, though, isn't it? Yeah, which is everything. <laughs> everything that sells something I'm so, I'm so glad I had Pearl Jam tickets this summer I get to see some real real people and real music again <laughs> yes I believe that they're actually playing quite close to uh, close to me and Milton Keynes so I should yeah. be going to my friend's house which is quite near the concert and just sitting out in his garden with, with a few cold beers uh, I'm doing a road trip with my son to Oslo to see uh, Pearl Jam there as well so that should be good fun cool I'll try to get him drunk or something. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I actually don't know if he listens to this or not. So that that would be interesting to see if, if if he comes back to me. You said you would try to get me drunk. Okay. Well, you know, he's got all his um, various VMware certifications now, so it wouldn't surprise me if he's trying to keep up with the industry. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, but I mean, uh, if you want to keep up with the industry, I don't know if we're the best podcast to be listening to here. Possibly. <laughs> what well, podcast might may be available? Um, sure. So yeah, I was thinking, you know, hypervisor footprint and that VMware are saying, well, Microsoft hypervisor has got a five gig footprint, and yeah, five gig was a lot of data um, back in about 1994. Um, but you know, it's now not really that much data. I mean, you know, I've got a couple of USB six on my desk that the total sixteen gig. Um, so, in the grand scheme of things, is that actual hypervisor footprint necessarily bad? If you include, you know, given that you need to have, even with uh, vSphere, you've got to have space for logs or at least a temporary folder for logs, even you know, if you're, you're pulling them off to a central log server or something like that. Um, but is it really that much of anything more than a marketing bullet point? Um, well, I kind of think that. No, it makes things a little more thick and awkward. Also, bigger the footprint you have, more chance of security issues you're going to have there. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking as well. I, I don't care if 5 gigabytes or 1 gigabyte, it, I don't care if that's a lot of data as such as with regards to storage space and and. and the footprint it, it takes when uh, when you actually install it. My my biggest concern or beef with that part is basically that why do you need five gigabytes of stuff to run run uh, uh, a, a hypervisor? Yeah, well, the reason why is it's it's nearly a full operating system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, know, from, I know. The thing from is, my experience, the full and also having just that full operating system there as a footprint has caused me nothing but grief. For instance, one time I was trying to P to V, um, a bar, or no, a V to V, like convert a Hyper-V machine to a VMware machine, and pff, no error messages really, just nothing nothing working properly. I found out later it's actually stupid Microsoft UAC was turned on, and mm. it's like <laughs> you have to reboot all... This this um, particular box didn't have any live migration or any way to fail over, meaning I'd have to reboot all 20 VMs on this server just to continue. Ooh. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, UAC, yeah, that's terrible. I could go on and on about that. But, uh, yeah, writing actual, yeah, then we came up with a way, create another Hyper-V box, right to that one with UAC disabled, then V to V from that box, so we didn't have to turn anything off. But it's just the fact of, yeah, a thick operating system has no place in um, a hypervisor whatsoever, from my point of view. Yeah, I, 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 I can basically compare it to, uh, at my former employer, we set up this emergency or disaster recovery site. 
And we have this HPX storage 1600 thing, which is basically a Windows server box with some integrated storage in it, and, and you use it as an iSCSI target. Which in itself is, I guess, fair enough. But with the same thing there as with uh, a full, fully, full uh, operating system or whatever, you need to patch basically everything. And when I had to actually reboot that thing because it had Adobe Reader installed on it and I had to patch it, that doesn't <laughs> make any sense to me. I had to actually, actually remove the storage and reboot the iSCSI targets. Ooh, that's ugly. Yeah, because HP decided it was a good idea to include Adobe Acrobat Reader on installed on the Windows server that came with the box because all the documentation was in PDF. Yeah. So you, you get into yeah. those kind of kind of issues where you have to patch something completely unrelated to the actual function of the the, uh, the hypervisor, or the in this case, the storage box, and you have to reboot yeah. and restart and, and do a lot of things just because of this auxiliary stuff that's on it as well. And and this is, if you think back to ESX, ESX versus ESXi, that's the exact same thing. They had, ESX had a full... Uh, the service console was a Red Hat thing with, with, that had a lot of unnecessary stuff on it. And a huge amount of the patches for ESX was actually patches for the service console and Red Hat fixes. Yeah. And you, you run into the same kind of issue with, with uh, when you have the structure that Hyper-V has on the basis uh, thing. There's a lot of more stuff there that you don't actually use, but you have to protect it and you have to patch it and you have to manage it. True, although Microsoft would claim that the whole core installation reduces that surface fairly significantly. For example, you can't put Adobe Reader on it. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not blaming Microsoft for HP putting Adobe Reader on the storage box. No, and I, I'm, I'm probably actually talking about older versions of Hyper-V as well when I talk about it rather than the new 2012 with the core edition windows that's uh yeah I haven't really had a very good look into that yet but I would hope that UAC is turned off in this version by default or it does not exist <laughs> yeah it would kind of, kind of make sense to make it easier to disable by default yeah well in my, in my mind, at least, the 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 less the smaller the footprint, the better it is. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's more secure. It doesn't mean that you don't have to patch it. It doesn't mean you ha don't have to manage it. But as far as attack surfaces go, the lesser amount of code you have, the odds are you're going to have less issues. Yeah. That that might not actually be the case, but. If you just look at the numbers, lines of code versus uh, entry points of data, whatever, it makes sense. Also, um, the same goes for me with the reason why I dislike file servers so much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have to reboot your your you have to yeah you have to lose access to stuff just for updating yep. whatnot. I mean, that's why I'm so much into the whole appliance type of SIFS appliance or NFS appliance or whatever kind of thing you're using just makes so much more sense than having a thick operating system running like that. Well, so you're still a big, a big fan of using a, you know, a NetApp box or uh, well, EMC with a file head on it? Yeah, yeah, but. yeah, something like that. I mean, whatever, it makes it much easier to do even updates on it. I mean, you don't lose access at any time. You have an active, well, mostly these things are an active-passive configuration with two heads. Yeah. but at, you, you can do that with a Windows file server, though. Yeah. Sure, but it's it's much more chunky and much more prone to, uh, let, let, let's look at it this way. I even had an example where somebody argued me that, that it would be much cheaper as well to set up. But they didn't have very much operation staff in-house to take care of this Windows server. Yeah, I would much rather get an appliance put in from a vendor 
that supports that appliance rather than having a Windows server that some guy that might not know how to do it is sitting there. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? And yeah, it cuts out the actual, it cuts out a lot of administration or whatever. I mean, with the Windows server, it's not an actual appliance. Again, it's, it, there, you have to update it way more often. Mm. But if, you're, if your organization is used to managing Windows servers, then just another Windows server isn't an issue. Um, if you've got umpteen, you know, you've got appliances from multiple vendors, and each has their own different way of updating. That you know, some might require a USB stick to be put in because they won't be connected to the internet. Some will automatically update themselves. Some get remotely managed, all, all that sort of stuff. Wouldn't it be easier from a a you know uh, an operations point of view just to have this is how we update all our servers because they will run Windows. They all have the same procedure to update. Well, yes and no. Um, rather than that, if if you have multiple vendors' update cycles that you've got to try and keep to, and obviously yeah, I mean, then you need many, to have separate many, bits of kit to QA those patches because you're not going to yeah, suddenly roll and out. How many shops do you know that actually function that smoothly, anyways? That would have QA for a Windows cluster file server. You know what I mean? Each one is individual <laughs> as well. Yeah, the tough. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, clusters. You wouldn't necessarily QA the whole cluster, but you might well boot, you know, patch one node, make sure it comes up safely, then fail over and patch the other. If it doesn't, then well, you have to rebuild or roll and out. And then, patch. and then you got a shared storage device to worry about with firmware on the shared storage device, and then you got mm-hmm. separate servers with BIOS and all that crap to worry about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're rebooting every five oh. minutes. If you have an appliance, you you just there's one BIOS, one blah, one. You know what I mean? It's all embedded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose it depends on what the, the you know the, the operation strategy is. Um, yeah, the thing is, what are we doing with our actual work, workloads? If you if you look at how we are supposed to create stuff these days. You know, you, you split up your databases and you split up your web servers and you split up everything. And then you kind of, you create these VMs that do one thing and do it well. And then you create new VMs for doing other stuff that interacts with that stuff. That's the gist of basically all the virtualizations that we, we do. So, why should we continue to use a monolithic operating system that can have 15 different roles depending on how you configure it? Amen, brother. So the thing is, we are splitting up everything into smaller manageable chunks anyway. So the general purple purpose, general purple, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. You don't know what to know. That's <laughs> like from the the game Clue. You know the game Clue. Like General, <laughs> General Purple. General Purple in the uh, library with a candlestick. General Purple sounds really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Does sound like a euphemism. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't want to use General Purple anymore. We want something else. <laughs> That's basically what I'm saying. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we want uh, yeah something that's definitely not generally purple. <laughs> but, but you know, surely if um, a window, a Windows server, or any—I mean, it doesn't have to be Windows. It could be, it could be Linux. If, if a server, an x86 box with an operating system on it is a commodity item, yeah. um, and you're repurposing that commodity item for whatever you want to do it, that's, you know, it sounds dangerously software-defined. The difference between that being a Linux kernel or a Windows, or a Windows OS, what's, is it really that different? No, not really, no. Because Linux has the same thing. Uh, It's a general purpose, I got it right this time, thing (laughs) that you can configure in unseen different varieties and does that make it easier to manage than a dedicated box you have to learn how to manage once and then it's the same thing from there on? I don't think so. 
and also clustered file servers within a hypervisor. I also dislike that very much. Yeah, that, that's an interesting interesting use case as to. Um, but I don't know. I I used to be quite sort of anti-filer appliances simply because you needed sort of you know separate data and separate teams to manage them. Whereas if you if you kept it in Windows, but then again, I didn't have. I wasn't managing large amounts of file data. And I expect that people that do manage large amounts of file data have, um, you know, filers probably solve that one uh, that one requirement very, very, very easily and quite powerfully because that's what they're good for. Yeah. But for companies who are not relying on large amounts of file data that have just got, you know, sort of general purpose file server requirements, I don't. Th- I think a filer is actually more complexity than they need. Yeah, it depends on your size. Do, do, you, do you think it's easier to manage a clustered Windows file server setup than a active-passive uh, NFS box? I don't think so. You shouldn't even really have to touch that active-passive NFS box. Exactly. Um, it should call home if something goes wrong with it. It's a beautiful okay, thing. Okay, but then you've got the additional cost. Of, of buying an, yet another vendor support contract. Sure, yeah. Um, which, in a, lo- in a large environment, absolutely, I, I see the point. Um, but I'm thinking sort of, you know, that small to medium kind of requirement. The thing, the, I, I guess my, my take on it is that managing uh, uh, large Windows-based file clusters isn't necessarily... Uh, easy, even if you do know Windows servers. Uh, you're getting into a lot of other things that you usually, if you have a team that manages your Windows boxes, it doesn't mean they know how to manage a cluster. And I, I've seen enough weird cluster setups to, to, to know that that complexity might actually be worse for a lot of smaller organizations as well. It might be easier for them to actually manage some sort of appliance that they get a, a two-day training on, and that's how you do it. Yeah, um, I don't know because uh, yeah, clusters were horrible. I mean, you know, let's let's look at the, the NT days when NT clusters were some freaky voodoo magic that, if as long as you looked at them right and did the relevant dance, they would work. But if they went wrong, then you you might as well just give up and go home. Um, and they got a bit better in 2000, but they were still quite painful. Yeah. And they got a bit better in 2003, but they were they still had some interesting features, particularly if you tried to go over two nodes. Yeah. Um, but you know, 2008, the the wizard started to actually improve and mean something. And 2012 clusters actually aren't too bad. No, I, uh, I know. I, I just designed such a, a solution, to be honest. Hmm. But it doesn't make necessarily make it easier for a, a Windows base or your usual Windows team to actually understand what's going on. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in a cluster that isn't what uh, your run-of-the-mill Windows admin would have had to do stuff with. Or if, he lose, if you lose the storage or something weird like that. Yeah. Then I, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things that could go wrong. I'm I'm not saying that 2012 clusters are bad, but I don't think they are necessarily easy to manage for someone who's used to managing a Windows infrastructure without clusters. So there's a, there's a lot of it's an interesting thing to try to figure out what uh, makes sense for a given customer in that regard. Yeah, I. Uh yeah, I was never a fan of them since. I mean, yeah, DN. I, or, here's one example. Their downfall. Ever, I mean, I think still continued is if they don't have access to DNS. Mm-hmm. There goes your there drops down your servers, right? In 2012, is it the same? Yeah, because what what you do is you put DFS on top and use the DFS uh, entry or uh, the DFS entry points as as your entry and. Three points to your file data, regardless of if it's on a cluster or not. Mm-hmm. And then DFS is totally dependent on DNS anyway. So if you don't have DNS, 
well. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, but but that's that's the same thing for basically every Windows network out there. Without DNS, you're screwed. Yeah, sure. That's it. Sure. So before before you can blame storage guys or networking guys or whatever, blame DNS because that's usually where the the problems start. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, good name resolution is quite important for a lot of things. Um, you know, particularly if you know, eventually someone will probably say it's the year of IPv6, but when IPv6 comes, if you don't have DNS, then you're kind of stuck, really. Because <laughs> you're not going to remember those IPv6 addresses. No, they look really cool, like futuristic. Yeah, but they're kind of, you need DNS. <laughs> you, need, you need to have some friendly names going around. Um, I, I happen to know some... Um, people that have set their entire network static with no DNS because they didn't trust it. <laughs> back well, in the day, back in the day. Oh, okay. Not yeah. now. That now it's not even possible. Well, DNS. You know, you used to just be able to pass host files around, didn't you? Yeah. Editing host files. You can still have a lot of fun with editing host files. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And keep like a master host file and create a script that like spreads everything out to the other ones. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, what I'm doing actually uh, to kind of help me a bit in that regard is uh, in my lab is is actually using this thing that Kenrick uh, made, uh, the Jump Squares uh, appliance or uh, Jump Squares as a, as a service or whatever he's calling the hosted version. <laughs> that um, almost sounds like that game. Uh, have you guys seen the film uh, Office Space? It's kind yeah. of jump to conclusions. Yeah, jump to conclusions, Matt. <laughs> the worst idea ever. <laughs> well, I, 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 I kind of like the jump squares thing, though. Uh, <laughs> so basically, it, it's kind of a set a set of bookmarks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, that that are nicely arranged. Um, I mean, but there are, presumably, you know, other bookmark-sharing devices exist, like Google Chrome. Yeah, but the thing is, you can, you can uh, either you use the downloaded appliance and use it in your, your own uh, environment, or you put, put it on, onto his uh, cloudy thing there. But uh, what you can do with it is basically have several people have access to it and edit and add and do whatever they want. Um, and then you, you kind of have one centralized pl place to have your links or your uh, hyperlinks, or your, you can even add SSH and, and uh, RDP sessions directly and download an RDP file and, and start uh, your connection to a Windows server, for instance, uh, directly oh, from, okay. the, uh, from the uh, bookmark thing. So well, that's well, probably better than having like a, a team wiki or something like that, which I yeah. Know. It's one of the things I see on you know, my various travels around to the customer sites, and you know, every everyone has it. You know, whether it's just a shared Excel sheet somewhere, or whether they're using one of the various like sort of one pass for Teams or something like you know, one of those sort of third party tools that manages the security aspect as well, yeah. which is quite cool. I've seen that one before. Um, so yeah, I suppose if you, if you you had it as a, an alternative for that. If, if all you were going to try and set up a wiki for was to keep team links and links to servers and stuff like that, uh, it could be quite handy, I guess. Yeah, I, I use it in my own lab, which I, right now, I'm the only one who has access to. But just to keep track of the management interfaces for the storage stuff, uh, all the different servers I have set up with static IPs and whatever uh, that aren't part of the Windows domain and the, therefore not in DNS if I haven't been a good boy and added them manually. Uh, yeah. So I, I kind of add all my things there uh, and set it up as my start page on my management machine in, in, my, in my lab environment. And I have basically everything available to me just at a click of a button, which I, th I think is kind of cool. It, it, it's, hmm. a, it's a nice project by Kendrick, who, who just kind of had the idea to do this and coded it himself. Uh, in yeah, I was going to say, he, he 
presumably because he's now had a uh, a uh, a daughter, I think. Um, it's something productive to do whilst you've got a small child asleep on your lap. Personally, I, I played Bioshock, um, <laughs> and I completed that bad boy too. So, yeah. <laughs> so that I I, I like it. it it's uh, it's uh, I think it's kind of fun to have that thing uh, going, uh, and it's it's easy to use, and you can tag stuff, and you can uh, have a lot of fun with it, uh, basically. As much It'd be quite nice if it did a discovery feature. Yeah, it's that that is missing, actually. It doesn't have that. Um, yeah, that'll be quite uh, quite clever. I mean, they used to do that tool that was quite handy for that discovery thing. Oh, what was it? Uh, GFI Landguard or something. It must have been about 10 years ago, at least. Yeah. And you, used to, you know, you kind of pointed at a subnet, and it went out and find, found uh, web interfaces and things. Yeah, but you, I I guess there there there's this is kind of interesting actually because his hosted version wouldn't be able to do anything with that, but the uh, appliance version that you download and uh, deploy in your own environment, yeah, could if it's in your environment, then you can use it as a port scanner. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, it it's a it's a Linux box with Ruby on Rails on top of it and which then runs the code that Kendrick made. But that probably means you could install Nmap on it and use Nmap to basically survey your local subnet. Yeah. Uh, it could then present you with a list of, okay, every web or uh, every HTTP or HTTPS uh, discovered IP that it found and just have a quick ad for it. Yeah, well, that'd be quite. Uh, I, I, quite I, interesting. I think I need to talk to Kendrick because I've, yeah. I've suggested things to him before that he uh, actually embedded into the uh, Jump Squares appliance as well, which he he did rather quickly. So that would be an interesting thing. I, I, I need to suggest that to him. <laughs> I like the idea of it because again, you know, for, for home labs, because you're always forgetting. Again, I I don't tend to use DHCP. Uh, in my home labs, um, but I forget the IP addresses, and I used to have to either use like a, an IP address scanner to go and find them. But it would be quite nice if something actually just also discovered them. I could just click on and go right. Well, these are the active boxes on your lab that are running at the moment on your lab. Click here to like launch an RDP session to. Yeah, I, I actually have something for that on my phone. Uh, it's a small tool called Thing. Yeah, yeah, me. I use that as well. It's really yeah. cool. For wireless networks only, but it's really cool what you can uh, you can kind of find through there. It's yeah, well, for, I tried it on my company's network. Uh, I didn't really get much information back. I guess the security is much better than a standard wireless network. So, what's it called? Thing. All right, thing, as in the thing. No, as like in, thing, as, like as like in F I N G. Oh. Okay. <laughs> It's that effing thing. It's effing oh. cool app. It, yeah. <laughs> I, but uh, I, I use that actually uh, in my home network to just figure out where everything is because I do use DHCP. <laughs> and uh, not all my boxes and appliances auto-register in DNS, and I haven't really set up the DHCP to auto-register everything in DNS for me. So all of a sudden I have a lot of stuff going on. And I have a couple of kids, one of them, uh, Frederick, my son, who, who who kind of puts up a lot of stuff. He he runs Workstation and he runs Fusion as well. And a lot of all of a sudden, we have a lot of things going on in our network. So it's it's uh, that effing thing is pretty good at finding <laughs> the, those odd pieces of weirdness in my local network. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's quite impressive. So I've just, I've, whilst we've been talking, I've just quickly downloaded it, and I had no idea in just my, my regular home has quite so many wireless devices. Yeah. Exactly. It's a scary number. That's mm -hmm. basically why I ditched... I, I, I used to have uh, this WatchGuard firewall running uh, at home. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was great. Uh, could do everything basically with it, but it was licensed per protected IP, and my I had a license for like ten devices or something. Um, that 
doesn't go well now. I have quite a few more devices than that. So I basically dumped that uh, and went with the uh, my ADSL provider's uh, router router instead and, and used that to manage everything. So basically, this just licensing thing makes it weird to use in a, even in a home network now. Yeah, that wouldn't be good unless I suppose you could cheat and sort of nap things outbound. Yeah, I could do that, or I could just not put in a default gateway for everything. And I mean, my printer doesn't need to have a default gateway, <laughs> but it does. And then in WatchGuard's uh, view, it then actually uh, uses one of the licenses because it connects to the to the gateway, which is the box. So. But no need for it anymore. I, I used to have it to basically have a, a site-to-site VPN with work uh, at my previous employer, which I don't need anymore. So. Ah, yes. Yeah, watch cards used to... I remember using those years ago. And they had a really, really nice... Um, the best thing I've ever seen with a watch card, they had this really cool little utility which gave you a graphical view of all of the network connections. Yeah, yeah. In real time. Well, yeah, semi-real time, but it was very, very cool. You could see what devices were connecting to what. Mm. Uh, it was always uh, really, really quite powerful, but as you say, they were relatively expensive uh, for yeah. what they Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, have you guys looked at any of the uh, virtual boxes or virtual appliance stuff for that? I, I saw that F5 is now doing uh, they what was it? They, the, the F5 Big IP Virtual Edition. Yep. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden cost like $100 or something. Yeah, so they're, they're, local, it's a, they're local traffic manager, isn't it? So Yeah, it uh, also does load balancing and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sort of endpoint kind of stuff. Um, but uh, for VPNs, I've seen uh, Juniper do a good one. Yeah, I haven't looked at that, but I, I don't think they're selling theirs for a hundred bucks. No, it's quite. Uh, I mean, we use something similar, and it's actually quite expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I think the I I, I really want to have a play with the, the big IP one from F5 because a hundred dollars I could easily get that expensive expensed uh, in my lab environment at work and that that would be uh, be an interesting thing to for instance put in front of my view connection servers and try to load balancing with that and, and doing some some kind of cool stuff but it wouldn't have to be that extreme expense that you often have to pay for those kind of things mm-hmm. yeah because I thought the Juniper one though they were doing like a five. You got like five connections or something. Hmm. Okay, that's something to check. Is it, out. Yeah, there's a demo and training edition. Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, and you can obviously connect. You can connect sort of iPhones and stuff directly to Juniper. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, and I'm told they are they are pretty good. I've certainly used them just to test. One of my colleagues uses one for connecting to his home lab. Uh, and uh, yeah, it seems to do the job. Yeah, I use OpenVPN for that at the moment here at home. But would be most interesting to have a look at the load balancing stuff and and, and see how that works with, uh, especially with the with uh, connection service and view. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, view requires separate load balancers, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't have anything built in. Is it, but surely, isn't that supposed to be part of V? Or can you use V shields as a low balance? Yeah, you, c- you could use that as well, but it depends on how it's how how things are licensed. You know, it's a, smaller view customers might not have um, the required licenses for that, so it depends on how you want to do it. Uh, so if you if you can get a a small low balancer for a hundred dollars, then uh, it's exactly. not necessarily a bad thing. No, exactly. And F5 is well known for the load balancers as well, which it'll be an. Int- I think that's something I need to have to have a play around with. Uh, 
just as I've been playing around with uh, Trend Micro's Deep Security in my lab now as well, which seems to be working really well, actually. So, but I'll probably write something up about that at, at some point once I've I have a few other writing commitments that I need to attend to as well. <laughs> mm. I always love, like the idea of that trend, trend product, but it, it worried me that it would suddenly become a massive I.O. bottleneck. Not as much as running agents in every VM. Yeah, that's a, a fair point. That's the, uh, that's the big selling point of it, basically. But then again, those agents could be spread out over a number of different storage devices, whereas... Whereas you put the uh, deep security virtual appliances on local disks. Okay. Well, I suppose nowadays you can put it on a local SSD. Put it on a local SSD, uh, have one appliance per host, and just run it through there, and you, you, won't have, you probably won't have problems with it. I haven't seen anything in my lab environment. That, uh, but then again, that's a lab. So. But as far as I can see, you put stick that on local storage, have it run through the traffic, and you don't thrash the sand with scanning. Um, makes a lot of sense. Mm. Well, that's good. You're starting to then pile up the number of like little appliances that you have to add into a vSphere. So they're almost circling back to our, our old conversation that you know you're getting one box that's kind of got everything on it. So you've got your appliance for antivirus. And let's say for argument's sake, you're running Nutanix, so you've got the Nutanix dirty great big storage appliance on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're going to be doing, uh, to think there was something else that you could sort of stick for, that, that becomes sort of a, an acceleration appliance, and you've got all these various things which are consuming the local, the local disk, um, not leaving you with that much space to, to run your VMs. Um, that you know before you can actually run the workload you want to run, you've got to boot up all of these different appliance components, yeah. which have all got their own OS. You know, there's there's got to be some common overheads between those. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Is it is it more or less complicated? You know, if you've got to have and bear in mind, you need to have one of these per hosts. So if you've got a good sized environment, you know, good sized VDI environment, and these are pu presumably going to be VDI based mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, used in a, in a VDI type uh, platform. Yeah. You know, if you've got a couple of hundred hosts, so that's a couple of hundred AV appliances, a couple of hundred storage appliances, and say you're doing uh, sort of one of these DR uh, things like Zerto, where you need an appliance on there, so, and you've got a Zerto appliance for doing replication as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's um, just like appliance crazy. That's overdoing it. Yeah, you're going to get I mean, a appliance. You've got to simplify it at some point. And which, and presumably, you've then got to have a manager of managers looking after all of these appliances. <laughs> well, I don't think that... I think that's an extreme case. I don't think... Oh, of course, yeah, I, I, I am sort of push, push, pushing yeah. things to an extreme. But it slightly concerns me that there is things that will work really well at a small scale that don't necessarily work as well at a larger scale? Well, I don't know. In, in a view environment, you wouldn't... I, I, I would probably uh, divide that up into view pods anyway, which are smaller uh, separate instances, if you will, that run isolated from each other but share the same uh, image or whatever. Mm. Uh, and then you, you manage them... Uh, in, in the case of deep security, you manage the deep security from the deep security manager and you kind of uh, keep track of everything on their end from one management interface. But if you add on everything else, you have a lot of different management interfaces, sure. Um, that's not different for how we do things now anyway. How, what, what do you do with antivirus if it's agent-based? Well, you manage all the agents from a yep. central place. That's very true. Uh, would you rather? Would you? Oh, okay. The question is this then: uh, Would you rather manage two hundred appliances, that, or would you have to manage two thousand agents that need to talk to your management server? Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And I suppose if you've got is is that less complex or more complex than non non persistent desktops? You know, having to reinstall and deploy agent configurations every time you refresh the estate. 
Exactly. Yeah. Would you rather patch those 200 and patch your images? Oh, yeah, you know. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not a big fan of agents. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but that, that's the reality of it, though, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, if appliances are coming, like, there are a lot of appliances, I don't see, yeah, I don't see it being that hard to manage, really. Uh, I mean, what is there, a new update comes out every once in a while, you update it, hope that it works. If yeah. it doesn't, maybe support does something. Yeah, or yeah. you just deploy, deploy a new one. Yeah, and then it just, as long as there's not some detailed config, Yeah. you know. Then, yeah, okay. that, that, that's the thing. Storage appliances, you can't basically just rip and replace. No, easily. that would be awful. That wouldn't be any fun at all. No. But, but, but if you look at something like Trend Deep Security or something like that, it's, well, okay, you lost your local storage or somehow your appliance got uh, screwed over by something. Yeah. Oh, oh, deploy a new one from the management server and you're done. You don't care. It's yeah. non-persistent data that you don't need to have backups of even. Because you can just deploy a new one and it gets the policy from the centralized manager anyway. Who cares? Makes sense. Yeah. Quite simplistic. So, I, I, I don't necessarily agree that more appliances means more uh, complexity. Um, in a lot of cases, it, it means that you have to manage more bits in a way, but it's not something that you ha need to micromanage. Okay, yeah, as long as they're sort of, you know, to uh, to steal the line from ver various blogs and keynotes, as long as they're, they're chickens, not kittens. Exactly. So, guys, um, with that, I'll, I guess I'll wrap up this VSUP uh, 40 here. Uh, we basically talked about um, appliances and general purple. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we have a title here. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, you guys can, as usual, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Resoup.net.